Asaïra, 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 le peuple en ce jour sans cesse se répète. Asaïra, 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 malgré les mutins, tout réussira. Nos ennemis confiants restent là et nous allons chanter Alléluia. Asaïra, 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 cambre-nous jadis du cœur. Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this podcast, I read through American Writers 100 Pages at a Time using the Library of America as my source material. In this episode, we'll be continuing our two-part series on Thomas Paine's The Rights of Man and continuing a, a longer series on Thomas Paine uh, as over his overall writings. Um, so you can go back to the previous episode to hear what I have to say about the first part of Rights of Man. Um, but I'll just start out by saying that I think part two of the rights of man is more politically interesting and bold. And even though it's more specific, it's not so much based on general principles as some of the first part is. It's a little bit more bold and politically relevant, and it gives us things to work with as we envision perhaps our own political future. It's here that it goes beyond defending the actions of the French revolutionaries and goes beyond the kind of the general principles that you see in the first part of the rights of man to actually building a more systematic argument for government, society, and rights in a very practical in a sense. Um, this is where Paine really presents his vision of a social contract. Um, now, as we've seen in the first part of the rights of man, his view of, of social contract is really that it's, it's between the people of society. It's not between some abstract government. Um, he goes on and he spends about 75 pages talking about a workable constitution, taxation systems, systems of socially provided poor relief, public education, and all this stuff that we now take for granted but wouldn't have been true in the time Paine was writing when governments really didn't concern themselves with mass education or taxation systems that promote equality. We come away with a strong case for economic equality. Um, he's not proto communist in any sense. Um, in fact, he's far, he's actually quite blinkered in, in, by class issues, which is something I'll get to in a moment. But, but we do find kind of an anarchism almost based on individual independent producers, perhaps. Um, he has this ideal of, 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 a, of a society of, of, of producers that have a share of the wealth of society. He's going to de detail this more explicitly in uh, Agrarian justice, which I looked at at an earlier episode. The heart of his tax scheme is very, very similar to the progressive taxation system that we take for granted now, in that it has a maximum income, uh, which protects society from the rise of a new aristocracy, right, with a significant portion of government revenues being used to ensure the personal independence of all through both education. Um, some redistribution, but really poor relief. So it, it's kind of, it kind of creates the floor and the ceiling for the society. And within that, you can have great inequality, of course. But by creating a floor and a ceiling, Payne does say that there's a, there's a zone in which all members of society should, should dwell. Now, the things that struck me in reading the second part of The Rights of Man most uh, was first that Payne attacked the bicameral mode of government reflected in the English Constitution and in the American Constitution, which was already enacted by the time Payne was writing The Rights of Man. Of course, he's writing it um, in, in 1792. The U.S. Constitution was already going on for four or five years by that point. He thinks a bicameral constitution, a bicameral legislature, is an arbitrary division of the people's wills. You have an upper house that's, in theory, the upper house is supposed to be more wise, more sober, more mature, 
right? And people who support the idea of an upper house will argue this. Uh, certainly the idea of the Senate was to be a moderating force on the democratic will of the people reflected in the House of Representatives. And if you go back to the founders and what they said about it, that's certainly what they thought. But what it does is it opens up the possibility that a minority can trump the will of the majority, or in some cases even rule the majority. Payne here is suggesting a system more democratic um, that perhaps would emerge eventually in the United States with the direct election of senators. We, we, we now have a more democratic Senate. Uh, I don't think the criticism of the Senate as not reflective of the people's will directly is, is as legitimate with direct election, but we still have the issue that every state has two senators, which gives some smaller states more power than, than larger states. But So there's still that issue, but um, I'm, you know, it's less so than it was in Payne's day when senators were elected by by the state legislatures. Now, he does give a concession to splitting up the legislature that it might be wise to subdivide a single house so that legislation could be slowed down through two or three separate debates. But he doesn't like the idea of, of having a, a one body of legislature separated from the people. Now, you know, I'm not sure how I feel either way. Uh, I, I'm kind of, you know, I guess... I, I accept. I, I like what Payne has to say here in general. That maybe we need to move towards a more just general democracy, and in a single house, maybe would have been a a more efficient system. Because what Payne wants to say is that we never should be bound by the will of older generations, whether it's an aristocratic system, a monarchical system, or any any kind of system. Each people have a right to create their own government, and so then we need a government that's immediately reflective of the needs and the desires of the people. So uh, a system that's less in, in less indebted, less indebted to tradition is better in general. And so the unicameral system, Payne thinks, is simply um, more democratic. Second, the rights of man. The second thing I really noticed about this is the rights of man makes a strong case for the necessity of, of some level of equality. We see this not only in Payne's criticism of inherited wealth and its plan for a maximum income, but we also see it in his plan to keep the leaders of government close to the people with salary limitations. Now, likely Payne was more worried about the elite serving government or people using government posts to enrich themselves. This is not our concern now where any decent MBA can earn salaries that make the president of the United States look like a pauper. Payne's plan for progressive income tax dedicated to defense, the functions of government and the elaborate scheme for social equality. Well, la I don't know elaborate, but elaborate for the time, right? Um, I don't know of any comparable in the West of these social welfare system as compared to what Payne presents here in The Rights of Man. He almost has an 18th century war on poverty uh, envisioned here. He has ideas for annuities for all poor families and the elderly, uh, essentially prefiguring social security, employment for the poor, jobs programs, Kind of a New Deal logic there. Funding for poor people's funeral expenses. So kind of a, a public um, life insurance scheme. Also annuities for the disabled, soldiers, sailors, and tax relief for widows. So he's got pretty, by an 18th century standards, a pretty broad view of what the social safety net should be. A third thing that really struck me is pain and vision, the injustice of the criminalization of poverty. When rereading the rights of man, you know, these are really modern concept. So um, here's a, this is from page 604 of the Library of America version of the rights of man. Quote, when in countries that are called civilized, we see 
age going to the workhouse, age at going to the workhouse, and the youth to the gallows. Something must be wrong with the system of government. It would seem, by the exterior of appearances of such countries, that all was happiness, but there lies hidden from the eyes the common observer a mass of wretchedness that is scarcely any other chance than to expire in poverty or infamy. Civil governments do not constitute, do not consist in executions, but in making that provision for the instruction of youth and the support of age, so as to exclude as much as possible prolifigy from one and despair on the other, end quote. So what he says here, pretty explicitly, is that government has a duty to educate the youth, to keep them out of jail, and to keep the old, the elderly, out of poverty. The idea of keeping, I'm sure Payne has an idea here of, of kind of the deserving and the undeserving poor. I, I, I think it'd be hard for him to imagine that the middle-aged pro property la individual landowner that he, he'd like everyone to be would need government support. So he's, he's kind of pushing the support on the old and the young where he thinks it's most necessary. Um, so he would believe that the middle-aged people, the people of adults, the adult people would be able to care for themselves. Um, his solution was the creation of this social safety net. Um, and base, he bases this on some basic human solidarity. Quote, by the operation of this plan, the poor laws, those instruments of civil torture, will be suspend, superseded and the wasteful expenses of litigation prevented. The heart of the humane will not be shocked by ragged and hungry children and persons of 70 and 80 of age begging for bread. All right, so that end quotes. This is on page 63 of, of this version of The Rights of Man. And here the argument is a sense, the heart of the humane, you know, don't want to see poor and young living in poverty and despair. And so there's this basic human solidarity. This is why we do it. Um, it's not even necessarily about democracy, but it's about this uh, virtuous care for, for one another. He calls the second part of the rights of man, quote, combining principle and practice. And indeed, that's what he does. In a sense, what he, he is reminding us of is that establishing principles of rights and self-rule is only the first step. The revolution, which he defends in the first part of the rights of man, is only a step in the right direction. Uh, after that comes the job of creating a government. To, you have to envision what kind of government that is, affect it in a constitution, and then you know, defend that and develop it over time. He works, therefore, from the general to the specific. Um, so again, I think the first part of the right to man, yeah, it defends the specifics of the French Revolution, but it's, it's really about the principles. Where do rights come from, right? And where do they not come from in his critique of the English system? The second part is, is much more laying the groundwork, brick by brick, of what a just society should be. And he's careful to always admit that it's necessary for each people to figure this out for themselves. He doesn't say that this is the proper constitution for all time. He has some ideas on unicameral versus bicameral or whatever, but ultimately he thinks, you know, every generation has to think through this for themselves. Now, in the first part of the first chapter of the second part of the rights of man is called of societies and civilizations. Paine here argues that we are necessarily creatures of communities and therefore require some management of that social life, which is our need for, for government. So to quote the text, uh, to understand the nature and quantity of government proper for man, it is necessary to attend to his character. As nature created him for social life, she fitted him with the station she intended. 
In all cases, she has made his natural wants greater than his individual powers. No one man is capable without the aid of society of supplanting his own wants, and those wants, acting upon every individual, impel the whole of them into society, as naturally as gravitation acts to center. But she has gone further. She not only forced man into society, but a diversity of wants, which the reciprocal aid of each other can supply. But she has implemented to him a society of social affections, which, though not necessary to his existence, are essential to his happiness. There is no period in life when this love of society ceases to act. It begins and ends with our being. So therefore, basically, society uh, is... We're social beings, but we also can't provide for our needs. So we need to rely on society. Therefore, we need government to manage that. And we need some basic of solidarity to, you know, make sure some people aren't being re recklessly antisocial. Or at least that's, that's Payne's view here, his defense of the need for government. But even for the most radical, radical anarchist, there's something of hope in this statement. Since Payne does not really see a distinction between society and government, one is merely the administration of the other. We don't have here, which, which I think is maybe a trap the anarchists sometimes get into, of, of seeing the state as always a separate malevolent entity. It's almost like we're back to social contract theory in that the people have to make a deal with some external force, right? And instead of seeing government as something that emerges out of us, right? Um, he follows us with a short chapter on the origin of, of old governments, which we know from his other writings he thought was basically conquest and barbarism. So I don't think we need to say much about chapter two, which is um, basically rehashing some of the things you see in common sense and in the first parts of rights of man. Chapter three is called of the old and new systems of government. This is just a comparison of monarchies and republics. The difference was one of hierarchy versus, I guess, more general leveling. Monarchies are hierarchical and republics level power. With this basic division, Payne is willing to accept a broad variety of different forms. For instance, he talks here about Greek democracies as, as a promising model. Now, here's the point he makes. So, you know, while monarchies and kings can age and die and be born, republics don't. They don't age. They don't decay. There are always proper reflections of a vibrant and living society. To talk about youth or age in government is to promote the idea that rights are contingent, right? That maybe if the government is, is young and healthy, we can have rights, but at some point, decadence will emerge and we'll lose that. Payne does, rejects this idea. For him, government is always, a Republican government at least, will always be a reflection of, of the people. So it doesn't decay, it doesn't age. Rights are fundamental. Quote, a nation is not a body, a f the figure of which is to be represented by the human body, but it is like a body contained within a circle, having a common center to which every radius meets. And that center is formed by representation. To connect representation with what is called monarchy is eccentric government. Representation of itself, the delegated monarchy of a nation, and cannot debate itself by dividing it with another. So we also get into here his critique of, of a divided government. Right. It's like a body and that's a divided government, but it doesn't like live and die like bodies do. So chapter four is called Of Constitutions, and here he goes through various historical examples of constitutions, both the French example and the American one. Um, he doesn't really say this is the proper constitution, this is the way it should be. He doesn't say the American constitution is the right one. He acknowledges that the French and the American constitutions are quite different. Uh, they have different emphasis. They're created by different cultures and different people and with different wills. 
Um, but that's his point, ultimately, is that each people need to figure this out for themselves. He does generally prefer those that most accurately reflect the will of society and are most easily malleable to the will of people. So unicameral, closer to direct democracy or direct representation, frequent elections, a weak executive. These are things he thinks are probably better. Um, he's a bit suspicious of bicameral systems or those with strong executives, obviously. He seems to think that excessive checks and balances are products of the British system of divided government. Still, he is generally supportive of the American Constitution. In the final chapter of The Rights of Man, uh, of, at least in the, and this is the final part of the second section, examines the, quote, ways and means of improving the conditions um, of, of society or something. It goes on for a while, the title, but it's basically the ways and means of, of government. In other words, this section is interested in what governments can do to improve people's lives, to promote equality, and to promote the health of society. It is enough here to say that Paine has an idea of an expansive government that works to improve people through taxation and, and spending. Um, the general welfare clause of the Constitution is reflected in this part of, of the rights of man. And I talked a little bit about this in the opening of this episode. There's long discussions here on the development of poor laws, a progressive income tax, and inheritance tax. Thus it is that in the late 18th century, Thomas Paine envisioned a welfare state of sorts that controlled excessive wealth and limited poverty uh, as the cornerstone of democracy. There's a nice passage reflecting this in page uh, 633. Quote, by the operation of this plan, the poor laws, those instruments of civil torture, will be superseded and the wasteful expense of litigation prevented. The hearts of the humane will not be shocked by the ragged and hungry children and the persons of 70 and 80 years of age begging for bread, which I quoted before, actually. Um, the dying poor will not be dragged from place to place to breathe their last, and a, repri a reprisal of parish upon parish. Widows will not have maintenance for their children and not be carted away on their deaths of their husbands like culprits and criminals. The children will no longer be considered as increasing the distresses of their parents. The haunts of the wretched will be known because it will be to their advantage and the number of petty crimes, the offspring of distress and poverty will be lessened. The poor as well as the rich will be interested in the support of government and the cause and apprehension of riots and tumults will cease. Ye who sit in ease and solace yourself in plenty and such there are in Turkey and Russia as well as in England who say to yourself, are we not well off? Have you thought of such things? When you do, you'll cease to speak and feel for yourself alone, end quote. I just want to do a quick aside here because in the next two episodes on pain, we'll be looking at his religious views and it may not, we may not be able to get back to this. Um, so anyway, I've been reading Nancy Eisenberg's book, White Trash, the 400 year untold history of class in America. And this is, it's a, it's a really great book. It goes really throughout all of American history, looking at how the, mostly the white working class has been looked at or the white underclass has been looked at in American history. And uh, Eisenberg's point here is that class has always been a fundamental theme in American history. And America's never been that classless utopian ideal of, of writers like Jefferson and, and maybe Paine envisioned here. Um, certainly, Paine has this idea of kind of a class of producers that could care for itself. He pushes the need for social welfare onto the, the helpless, right? The, the young and the old. He doesn't see much need for a social safety net for the quote-unquote uh, undeserving poor, right? Which would be men of kind of adulthood, regular adulthood before they get old age, who can work, right? He, in this he shares with Jefferson, 
this goal of kind of individual producers. Eisenberg, talking about pain, looking mostly at common sense, argues that pain ignores class, right? Which I think is true as far as common sense goes. But as we know from agrarian justice, which Eisenberg talks about briefly, but even more so in Rights of Man, pain does, you know, see that there are poor in society. He doesn't think they need to be, though. Uh, he doesn't see poor as a necessity of society. He thinks it can be avoided through kind of a social safety net for the extremes. But I would say for most adult men, at least, he is still not really acknowledging the deep class divisions between rich and poor. And he's being a bit utopian in ignoring that. So I just wanted to point that out. It's a really great book, uh, Eisenberg's White Trash. It, it goes through all of American history and this really important theme of, of the white working class. And it's really timely these days with the Trump election and all the commentary on the Democratic Party ignoring the white working class and the white underclass and, and what does that mean politically. Um, her argument that it's, you know, the poor have always been part of American politics is, I think, something um, important to keep in mind. Um, and it's something I will admit that that Payne often neglects um, in his in his writing. So that does it for The Rights of Man. If you have any comments on this book, please uh, let me know. Uh, you can comment or you can send me an email at uh, 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, but if that's it, um, I will see you next time with The Age of Reason, um, Payne's arguments about Christianity and religion. So thanks so much for listening. Ça ira, ça ira, ça ira.